Our Old Testament reading is Psalm 23. Wonderful and familiar words from Psalm 23, wherein we do see, as we will see in our sermon text, a sovereign, a loving, and a saving God. Psalm 23, give your attention to the reading of God's holy word, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. And then go to the book of Romans in chapter 8. Again, Romans 8, beginning in verse 18. We are beginning a study that will be primarily in the evenings, going through the Heidelberg Catechism, but uh, we shifted it to the morning, this morning, and then tonight we'll actually be considering question and answer two, but it fits uh, with our text from Matthew. Uh, so just to, in order to kick off this series, it'll be mostly in the evening, um, we consider Romans 8. Verse 18, beginning in verse 18 through the end of the chapter, once again, God's holy word. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose." 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let us bow once more in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come humbly before your word. Open our minds and our hearts by the power of your spirit. Be with all of us. Be with those who uh, cannot be with us this morning. We think of those who are traveling or sick or shut in. We especially lift up to you Henrietta Littlejohn, who was admitted to the hospital uh, late in the week. Pray that you'd be with her and uh, the difficulties, the heart difficulties, blood pressure uh, difficulties that she's experiencing. Uh, be with her on this Lord's Day as well. What we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For your son's sake. Amen. Well, a wonderfully glorious passage before us, and we give consideration to these things, particularly as we have an eye towards question and answer one of the catechism, probably would never uh, seek to, to preach all of this at once if we were walking through Romans, and so we'll, we'll have to touch on some things, and uh, that'll make more sense as, as we go along. But as we well know, question and answer one of the Heidelberg Catechism is one of the more tre- treasured summaries of uh, the Reformed faith ever put to paper. It masterfully weaves together the glories of of Christ's accomplished redemption with the heartfelt pastoral encouragement that believers take to themselves and take to their own hearts uh, such glorious truths. And sometimes you see it's it's so wonderfully written and and, and so beautiful that sometimes it pops up in unexpected places, and that can be a, a very good thing. You're at a a funeral that perhaps the the person did not live out their life in in the Reformed faith or the Reformed church, and question and answer one of the Heidelberg Catechism is brought up, which can be a wonderfully glorious thing. I've seen it pop up and and, and be used in uh, in places and contexts where I'm a little bit more uneasy and uncomfortable with someone using the language. We need to be careful that we don't misunderstand the way that the catechism uses comfort and the comfort that it's actually talking about. I think one of the problems is we live in a comfortable age. 
And so people here talk of comfort and they kind of introduce all of the things about that idea that they would like to. We live in an age where self-identity and self-conception reign. People are seeking the comfort of being known and accepted and promoted as who they truly believe themselves to be. Someone will say, well, I identify as this, and being affirmed as this makes me feel comfortable. People will often sadly use God in this equation uh, in order to put forward the idea of being accepted and affirmed. God accepts whatever identity I take to myself, and that makes me comfortable. But that has nothing to do with the comfort of the Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism, from the start, even in the midst of its beautiful poetry or poetic prose, you might say, its beautiful language, its, its heightened sense of the glories of Christ, even from the beginning and amidst all of those things, it's engaging in, in a heavyweight fight. A heavyweight fight of trials versus comforts, of the pains of this life uh, put right against what we actually experience in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a comfort that can withstand the hardest, most intense, and agonizing experiences of this life. It is no soft comfort. It is firm and sure and unshaken. And it is all of those things, at least one of the reasons, is that it rejects the project of self-identity that we find in our world and instead adopts a posture of self-sacrifice, of self-denial. I belong to someone else. And from there, it takes a look at all of the evil in the world, all of the trials you might face, and positions all of those things against the glory of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ and the enduring good that we find in Jesus Christ. Here's what uh, Zacharias Ursinus says of the comfort of the catechism which he wrote. He says, comfort is that which results from a certain process of reasoning, a certain kind of thinking, in which we oppose something good to something evil, so that by a proper consideration of the good, we might mitigate or lessen our grief and patiently endure the evil. The good, therefore, which we oppose to the evil must necessarily be great and certain in proportion to the magnitude of the evil with which it is contrasted. And as consolation is here to be sought against the greatest evil, which is sin and eternal death, it is not possible that anything short of the highest good can be a sufficient remedy for it. And so here are the comparisons or oppositions which we will consider today from Romans 8. We'll figure it out in the next couple minutes what I should do, use the mic or not. The first is this. This is the first comparison. The glory of eternity versus this... Secondly, the sovereign spirit versus my ignorance and weakness. The sovereign spirit versus my ignorance and weakness. Third, the wonder of salvation versus sin and its accuser. And fourth, the risen Christ 
versus this world's separators. We didn't have sound for part of that, so I'm going to repeat those. These are the things that we oppose to one another, seeking the comfort that is found in Christ. The first is this, the glory of eternity versus this present life's sufferings. Secondly is the sovereign spirit versus my ignorance and weakness. Third is the wonder of salvation versus sin and its accuser. And fourth is the risen Christ versus this world's separators. So first, the glory of eternity versus this present time's sufferings. Again, we're seeking the comfort that is found in Christ by looking straight into the face of the worst things that this life has to throw at us and positioning against it what we find in Jesus Christ and his gospel. So verse 18 expressly tells us that we are to compare the blessedness that we have in Jesus against the trials and difficulties of this life in order that we might find that there is no comparison. That's what we find in verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, there is a profound disproportion between our sufferings in this life and the weight of glory that God's children will experience. A profound disproportion. And of course, for those who know something of the sufferings and the trials of this life, that is an astounding thing to declare and to find in God's word. In other words, we are called to place our hope in unseen things rather than seen and felt things. Very similar to what we find in 2 Corinthians 4. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look to the things that, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. And we find that in, in Romans 8, this is talking about the revealing of the sons of God and eternal glory. We hope for what we do not see. Now, what is it talking about there? It's talking about faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the firm conviction in things that we do not see. In other words, this life of hope and comfort is a life of faith, very simply. Faith in God's promises, faith in his gospel, faith in the blessedness that is found in, in Jesus Christ. In this passage, we are called to shun the despair that is presented to us prior to death and to place our faith in the blessedness that we will receive upon death. That is the hope of Christ. But in order to have that comfort, we must be confident that we are the children of God. And that inner confidence and inner testimony is the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that's where the passage goes next. So, second equation. The sovereign spirit versus my weakness. The sovereign spirit versus my ignorance. The spirit is called in the King James Version the, the earnest of our inheritance, the, the guarantee of our inheritance. Elsewhere in Romans 8 it says that the spirit testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. In other words, there's an inner ministry of the Holy Spirit that gives us assurance that we know God in Jesus Christ, which is what the Catechism talks about as well. By his Holy Spirit, uh, God assures me of eternal life. 
But another aspect of the comfort that the Spirit gives is here in Romans 8, beginning in verse 26. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. The comfort that issues forth from these verses is that though we would probably, we probably should be, a flush with doubt about our own ability to navigate our spiritual lives. We should have profound uh, suspicion that we are able to navigate all of the challenges that we will encounter spiritually in our lives well. We should, we should doubt that and doubt it greatly. In the midst of that, we see that God is at work in us in ways we don't even fully understand or comprehend. If we had to discern all of the ways, here's what this section of Romans 8 is getting at. If you had to discern all of the exact ways you had to pray for yourself, saying, well, I, I need God's grace for this thing and this thing that's coming up and this other thing that might happen and this other temptation that I'm going to be faced with. If you had to know all of the things you had to pray for so that God's grace, his protection would come to you, then we would all be in a very difficult position. But that is what's so glorious about what here is described as the intercession of the Spirit. We have the intercession of Jesus in heaven, but the, inter the, the Spirit intercedes in the theater of our own hearts and our own lives, making sure that we are ministered to in ways that will redound to God's glory and our good. You may not even know what you ought to pray for. You, of course you don't. You don't know the challenges that you're going to face. You don't know the trials that may be coming to you in your life, and yet God's grace will abound in your life. If God's grace came to us only in ways we explicitly asked, we would fail to receive grace in so many ways. In other words, what's going on here is like at the end of Ephesians chapter 3, where it says that God is able to do abundantly more than all we ask or think. See, we don't ask God for the grace to get through the trials that we don't know are going to come. And yet his strength is there for us. As your, as your days, your strength shall be. There may be things going on spiritually in our hearts or in, in the spiritual realm that we don't fully comprehend. And of course that's true. But God is able to do abundantly more than we ask or think. The spiritual comfort issues from this because in the midst of your ignorance and weakness, the Spirit intercedes for you. But you also have to reach further back into this whole story, into what makes you a child of God in the first place. So the third equation in our consideration this morning, the wonder of salvation versus sin and its accuser. The wonder of salvation versus sin and its accuser. What we have to kind of come into this passage knowing is that sin is a real problem. And if you walk through Romans, you will see that. That's what the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is laying out for us. Sin is a real problem. Condemnation is universal. And condemnation before God is something that we fail to adequately estimate in our own hearts and minds, what it actually is and how offensive sin is to God and how real our condemnation is. And so sin is a real problem. 
But in order to counteract that, of course, you have the gospel of Christ. And in order to counteract our ongoing problems with sin, the indwelling sin that creeps up in our lives, the failings that we continue to experience, the stumblings that we have, in order to counteract that, you have in Romans 8, the account of a wondrous, sovereign, loving, saving God who is sovereign in salvation, who holds us by his grace. And so we have the wonder of salvation versus sin and its accuser. Verse 29 tells us what the purpose of God is in, in, in saving us and then the means by which we are brought to that purpose. The purpose of God is to be conformed to the image of God's Son. That should be a, a humbling and really stunning thing. The Son of God, that highlights the uniqueness of, of Jesus. It highlights the uniqueness of, of the Christ, the only begotten Son of God who dwells in the glory of true righteousness and, and holiness. And so God loves sinners so much that his purpose for us is to conform us to, the, to his son's glorious image. It's a stunning thing. It's a wondrous thing. Proud parents, especially those who may be overzealously proud, what do they really seek in their kids? They, they want their kids to be distinguished from others, to be noticed amongst others. God in his grace wants us to be conformed to the image of his son, in his, in his uh, positional righteousness, in his resurrection glory, in his blessedness. Parents also spare their children from suffering at all costs. And God, the Father, exposes the Son to suffering in order to redeem and save sinners. But that is God's purpose, to conform us to the image of his Son. What are the means that we see in Romans 8? And this is what's known as really the, the, the golden chain of redemption, one of the more famous uh, passages in Scripture, particularly for those who are of the Reformed faith. The first, it says that God foreknew us. From eternity past, he foreknew his people, his children. This is the distinguishing love of God which he set upon his children, from all eternity. Some people are confused as to how foreknowing would be different than predestination, which is the next term. The distinction that we're getting at here is that God foreknows you in his love and his compassion. So he sets his love on his children from all eternity. In predestinating us, he then destines us to a certain place, which would be blessedness, which would be to be in Christ. So those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. And again, as we said, this is uh, to be conformed to the image of the Son is the risen, glorified, blessed Son of God, which Christ now enjoys in heaven. So think of the wonder here. Sovereign grace and sovereign mercy before the foundations of the earth were laid, God predestined his children to share in the heavenly life and the blessedness of Christ Jesus. All of those things, all of the things about redemption, 
about the gospel, about Christ. They were fixed in the purposes of God before the universe was created. And here's a greater mystery and a more wondrous mystery is that that does not impede upon the true human experience of Jesus. That he still was tried and tempted and he still suffered for sinners. Those whom he foreknew He predestined. And those whom he predestined, he called and he justified and he glorified. Here are the unbreakable but temporal acts of God that flow forth from his divine eternal plan. These are the actions of God which come to make blessedness a home in our souls. To the believer, if you're in Christ, if you're trusting in Christ, two of these things are in the past. God has called you And he has justified you. And yet all three of these things are described using the same tense and in the same way to show the sense in which they are bound together and unbroken and they lead one to the next and it is a guarantee of God because it's fixed in his divine eternal plan. It highlights God's decisive and sovereign action. There are things that we do in the midst of God's sovereign action, aren't there? We repent and we believe. We place our trust in Christ when God works through the gospel to call sinners to himself. And from that point forward, we show love and devotion and a purpose of new obedience. But here's what Romans 8 is getting at. God is the author of salvation. It's God's purposes that are being worked out. He is working in these things alone. He is calling. He is justifying. He is glorifying. They lead one to the other. Glorification is yet in the future for us. And yet for those who are in Christ, it is as good as done. Because God is sovereign and loving and saving. And so what does that do? One of the primary applications of these wondrous realities is the certainty with which we possess these things. Because if God is the author of salvation, our sin, and the one who would lob accusations in light of our sin, which, since we do sin, is a legitimate thing to raise. So the one who would accuse, the enemy, who would accuse us in light of our sin, cannot touch our status as beloved children of God. And that's why Paul speaks of justification in verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. You see, powerful forces in this universe want to claim you for themselves. But we read that it is God who justifies because the implication is that the most powerful being in the universe, the one who has created it all and who rules and governs all things, has given the definitive statement and verdict regarding the state and destiny of your soul. He has spoken. This is why Paul mentions justification and not adoption. Adoption is a wondrous doctrine. It's kind of warm, There's a heartfelt aspect to it, to be in the family of God. But we need an answer for the fact that judgment will happen. See, we probably all would rather be in our family room than the courtroom. You wake up in the morning, 
And someone says, would you rather spend the bulk of your day in your family room or go to the courtroom? Everyone would say the family room, right? It's where it's your home. It's where you like to be. But that does not change the fact that all people have their day in court. And all people will stand before their maker. And all people will stand before God. And when we do, there will be no blessing like unto knowing that a verdict has already been rendered by God. He has justified his children. It is God who justifies. In uh, the training that people now receive for being in the, the situation of uh, a, a shooting, a shooting situation, they basically give you three options. You can run, you can hide, you can fight. And you kind of do it in that order. If you can run, you need to run. If you can hide, you need to hide. If both of those things are not possible, you need to fight. And as human beings, we cannot ignore the fact that we will have our day in court. We will stand before our maker. And what will be our hope on that day? It's God who justifies. He's already rendered a verdict because of what we have done in placing our faith in Jesus Christ. So the comfort of justification is that God justifies sinners in Jesus Christ, but that brings us to the ground of our status because he says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. And then he says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. In other words, then he, he shifts our perspective to then now focus on the ground of how we are reconciled to our God. Christ Jesus, the Son of God, accomplished our salvation. He, is, he has been crucified. He is now risen, and he is currently reigning. John Murray says, you consider all that the Son of God has done for sinners, and you see love, he says, love that passes knowledge, love eternally to be explored, but eternally inexhaustible. You'll never plumb the depths of God's love for you in Jesus Christ. And you have it packed together here in these two verses. It's God who justifies. Christ Jesus is the one who died. Your sins are forgiven if you trust in Christ. His life is in you now, and he will be there in heaven to ensure that your place is never lost. And so then finally, the risen Christ versus this world's separators. The risen Christ versus this world's separators. Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, argues from the greater to the lesser, if God gave up his Son, how will he not also give us all things? He's already given us that which is the treasure of his heart, the Son of God. Once again, John Murray says, who delivered Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for en envy, but the Father for love. So the question becomes, what separates us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? And of course the answer is nothing. And so that allows us to apply then question and answer one of the catechism. Really four main guideposts in question and answer one or an answer one. 
The verse is this. The Son of God has set me free from sin and its power. Secondly, he guides and directs all things in heaven and on earth towards my good and my salvation. Third, he attends to me in such a way that I feel his presence and am confident that I am a child of God. Fourth, he creates new life in me and makes me joyful to walk in his ways in all circumstances, no matter what I face in life. And to go back to the beginning, this is no therapeutic viewpoint. This is no soft comfort. This is true comfort because it stares directly in the face of the worst things that can happen to you in this life and yet is still satisfied in Christ. Tribulation or distress, right? Outward calamity or inward despair. Persecution or famine. Sufferings at the hands of others or in the midst of the providence of God. Nakedness. Shame in our failures, defeats, or circumstances, danger or sword, your very life may be lost for your faith in Christ. And what is the point? That none of these things separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus. And because of that, we live in confidence and willingness to serve Him. But even more, if you live by faith in Him, in all of these things, You become conquerors in those very things which seem like outward defeats. Tribulation, distress, nakedness, persecution, famine, danger, or sword. In those very things, by outward measure, they would seem to to be our defeat, our shame. In those things, we become more than conquerors. We don't barely escape from them, see, we live in the midst of them, continuing to embrace Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the hope and, and the comfort that it's talking about. is that we don't need to fear the kind of shame that the world fears. We don't need to fear the kind of persecution that the world fears. It's a heavyweight fight. And so that leads Paul to his triumphant con- conclusion. That all things seen and unseen, all things past and present and future... All things that you know and that you don't know. All things that you will experience and that you will not experience. All things are subservient to the sovereign and loving God who has saved us and who will always work for our good because we always see Jesus. And in him we already have all of the answers, all of the satisfaction, all of the comfort that we need to be able to be more than conquerors in the worst things that we can face in this life. So he says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's sovereign. He's loving. He's saving. Even if our very lives were to be lost, our confidence is sturdy enough to withstand even that. It was an African pastor who was killed for Christ. And listen to what he wrote reportedly just hours before he was martyred. Listen to how the confidence of Psalm 23 and Romans 8, really the the confidence of, of question and answer one, is laced throughout what he says and how it really puts forward for us a true and a 
marvelous example of the kind of life we are to live if we have this confidence and this comfort. He says this, I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed, my present makes sense, and my future is secure. I am finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, chintzy giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotion, plaudits, or popularity. I now live by presence, lean by faith, love by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by his power. My pace is set, my gait is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions few. My guide reliable, my mission clear, I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, diluted, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I must go until he returns, give until I drop, preach until all know, and work until he comes. And when he comes to get his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My colors will be clear. They'll be flying. I will be with the company of the unashamed. God has sovereignly accomplished your salvation. Foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. And since that is true, if you believe it, he makes you wholeheartedly willing and ready to live for him. It's my prayer that you would rejoice in God's work for you in Christ. But because of that, knowing that the ground on which you stand is sure and unshaken, that you would live in the confidence of Psalm 23, Romans 8, question and answer 1, that you would live in the fellowship of the unashamed. Let's pray. And so, great God, we give you all praise and honor, thanks and glory. We thank you for the wonder of the gospel of grace. We ask that you would fit us for eternity, conform us to the image of your Son, that you might make us wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for you. Forgive us, cleanse us, establish us, and renew us. In Christ's name, amen.